You're listening to Lozano Smith's podcast, where we discuss important changes in the law and legal decisions that affect public agencies. Welcome, and thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Devin Lincoln. I'm an attorney in Lozano Smith's Monterey office. I'm the co-chair of the firm's facilities and business practice group and the manager of the firm's client news brief and podcast programs. This fall, our podcast series focused on a very active year for the California State Legislature. We've discussed legislation affecting school districts in areas such as students, special education, and labor and employment, and we've discussed the possible impact of a new statewide school facilities bond if, if it gets passed come 2020. Today, however, we're turning to the legislative topic that I think it's safe to say has dominated Sacramento this year. Just judging by the number of bills passed, which we're going to discuss, and their broad range. And that topic is affordable housing. As we've noted many times this year on this podcast, we have a statewide housing crisis, and it is receiving urgent attention from our legislators and governor, which in turn has big implications for our clients, local public agencies, such as municipalities. So joining me to discuss the juggernaut of affordable housing legislation this year are the co-chairs of Lozano Smith's Municipal Practice Group, Janelle Van Vinsbergen and Bill Curley. You'll remember Janelle from our podcast in January regarding school resource officers. Janelle practices in our Fresno office where she serves as city attorney for several cities, and she's an incredible resource for questions regarding law enforcement and other city affairs. Bill joined me and Harold Freeman for a conversation this summer regarding the affordable housing crisis specifically and its impact on local public agencies. Bill is city attorney for Mission Viejo and works out of our Mission Viejo and Los Angeles offices. He has practiced municipal law for more than 30 years, I believe, and is an invaluable part of our municipal practice group. So welcome, Bill and Janelle. Thank you, Devin. Well, thank you, Devin. It's an honor to participate with you all. Great. Okay, well, let's get right to it. So Janelle, is it fair to say that the level of attention to housing issues by the legislature this year is unprecedented, at least with respect to the recent past? Yeah, yes, um, Devin. They, there were a number of legislative bills during the 2019 legislative session, um, including um, upwards of, a, of 20, more than 20 housing bills mm-hmm. um, were passed this year and all with the purpose of addressing California's affordable housing crisis. Okay, wow. So, well, we can't cover 20 bills in the course of a podcast, but today we're gonna focus primarily on two of them, I believe, Assembly Bill or AB 101 and Senate Bill or SB 330. Bill, before we get into the specifics of what these two bills do, my question is, how significant are they? Is the legislature just tinkering around the edges with all this activity, or are these bills in particular, or the package as a whole, are these game changers? Uh, thank you, Devin. Um, Sacramento has struck directly at the heart of local control, local character of communities, and communities' quality of life. Each of the bills, the 20 and particularly these two, have a significant impact on discretion of the local jurisdictions, not only the the elected officials, but the voices of the community, the voters, the residents. Um, They have had their local control ability significantly diluted. And it's going to change radically 
the face of California. Uh, Single-family housing, single-family zoning doesn't exist anymore uh, under the accessory dwelling unit laws and other things. Every parcel is now a multifamily parcel. And the character of everything that everybody's known up till now has, through this legislative year, just been dramatically changed. Wow. Okay. Well, that is, you answered my question. It is a game changer. All right. So, Janelle, can you start by talking about AB 101? It's a big bill, right? It's an omnibus, and it became law immediately. Is that right? That's correct, Devin. It is it is an omnibus bill. It is a large bill that really deals with the affordable housing and range and has information in it regarding new regulatory enforcement um, protocols, new uh, creation of additional information regarding grants and taxes, tax credits um, for low housing projects. And it became effective immediately upon signing by the governor on July 31st of this year. Okay. So we're going to try to focus on, since we can't cover the whole bill, the biggest highlights of the bill. So, Bill, I'd like you to get us started talking about the subject of housing element compliance, because as I understand it, that is one of the primary topics of AB 101. Yes. How does AB 101 strengthen the state's hands there? Well, uh, it pointedly does. Historically, the, the housing element is part of the general plan, which is known as a city or a county's constitution. It lays out a about a 20-year horizon of how a city sees itself evolving into the future. That was all at the discretion uh, of the local community, what they wanted to see themselves to be. That's now gone. Uh, The state's imposition of mandatory housing numbers, uh, including a loss of zoning, mandatory increases of density, mandatory fast-tracking approvals, in some cases CEQA avoidance, all come together to change what a community may have seen its future to be. Well, now that we have the direction from the state on how we need to change our local laws, our local constitution, that community's vision, if you will, Mm -hmm. uh, the state to prove how serious it was, has ramped up enforcement. Uh, Typically, historically, you would get a scolding letter from the State Department of Housing and Community Development, known as HCD, telling you you were falling short and that you needed to try harder. Well, the legislature has now built in the ability for that administrative branch, HCD, to trigger litigation, lawsuits against a local community. Interesting. The state, uh, the governor has also augmented the attorney general's budget by almost $2 million to fund those attacks. And it brings with it not only the ability to sue cities uh, for falling short, if you will, but there are steep, steep penalties. They start with 10000 and they can range up to 100000 per month. Now, granted, there is a, an incremental approach that doesn't befall you immediately. Uh, the state gives you an opportunity to acquiesce and follow their directives. 
But if the preference of a local community is to preserve its own culture, the state will punish that city not only economically out of its general fund, but it will cut off state grants and state funding. Uh, so the, the state, uh, using, I suppose, the time-tested parent control of cutting off your allowance mm. if you misbehave, is going to strangle local cities by withholding their money and then fining them for not being compliant with what the state thinks your city should be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, Bill, we talked about in our prior podcast on affordable housing, we talked about the state pursuing actions already against the city of Huntington Beach as well as others. How has this new law changed the state's ability to, to, to act against cities like Huntington Beach? Well, again, as noted, now you have the attorney general's office fully funded and mandated to come after cities to initiate litigation. Mm -hmm. So there is a huge cost factor. Uh, a lot of cities don't have the discretionary funds to fight the state. Right. That's an expensive undertaking. So they will be forced to acquiesce just because they can't afford to forego other community goods like filling potholes or funding police officers or fire trucks. So the state twists their arm that way. Secondarily, um, recent case changes, case law coming down, have thrown into question the bulk work of what was known um, in essence as a charter city, meaning it had its own local control that was separate from general state law and the the cases that are diluting this charter city authority strip off the bulk work that Huntington Beach and others have so far successfully relied on. Gotcha. So you're getting a, a one-two punch. The, mm -hmm. the state is strangling cities economically while at the same time the legislature and Apparently now some of the judicial holdings are stripping the cities of their defenses. So capitulation, uh, to a large extent, is, is the only remedy available to cities, which is going to change the investments people have had in their homes and their neighborhoods. So everything you know likely is going to change from there going forward. California is going to have a different landscape, both uh, socially and physically, mm -hmm. much more high rises, high densities. Mm -hmm. It's going to be very different. Interesting. So there's a lot of sticks there. Are there any carrots in AB 101 with respect to housing element? Well, uh, there are. Um, what happens if you do follow uh, what the state has suggested, that flip side of strangling your economics, you now will get, uh, get cuts in line, if you will, to points for housing and infrastructure programs. State has some various fundings and grants that are available. They will uh, encourage you uh, this is the, the carrot part. They will encourage you through economic contribution 
to follow their commands and demands as to how your housing should re refigure itself in the community. And they, they also, in sort of a, uh, another economic way, will keep you off the, the list of non-compliant agencies. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a public shaming list where you mm-hmm. are noted on a state website as not being compliant. Well, beyond the, the political embarrassment, if any, what that also does, there are a number of housing advocacy and social justice-oriented law firms and organizations that use that list uh, to target agencies that aren't compliant. They will routinely bring lawsuits and seek private attorney general awards for correcting the the now found to be non-compliant uh, statutory behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the Lodestar Awards, the economic awards given under private attorney general cases can themselves be staggering. So getting on the list alone is embarrassing, and if it puts a target on your back, for, again, a, another economic hit, now this time not from the state itself, but furthered by the state identifying you, uh, it is a further incentive to stay off that list, if nothing else, to protect your treasury, if not to be compliant with state law. Interesting. All right. Well, um, that's rather dismal. Um, let's um, turn now, Janelle, from the housing element aspects that Bill's been talking about in AB 101 and talk about something else, which is homeless shelters. I understand these are called low barrier navigation centers in the new legislation. What does that term mean? And what does AB 101 require with regard to those shelters? Yes, Devin. So the low barrier navigation centers are specialized um shelters or homeless shelters that are designed to kind of some of the terms we've heard in the past are like halfway houses. Basically, they're designed to help someone. It's a temporary facility, someone to um, enrich their lives or connect with the, um, you know, someone who might have some disabilities or something or or not be able to, instead of being on the street, they can come to these um, low barrier navigation centers and try and reincorporate themselves into society in a positive manner, right? So the shelters tend to offer special services to help people, to motivate people, um, to help them find permanent housing, provide temporary living facilities, um, and connecting people to um, jobs, additional incomes, public benefits, or health services. And so they they have certain criteria that they have to meet to become a low barrier navigation center. But what the new law says is that if you meet these elements, if you can qualify as a low, uh, low barrier navigation center, then it is a right. You have a right to place that facility or that shelter in a mixed use and non-residential uh, section of the city or county, um, and you get an absolute right to to build that facility in that that spot. So cities and counties can no longer require conditional use permits or uh, other types of conditions that would require um, a developer to apply for additional or go through additional processes 
um, in order to build these shelters. So basically, it's going to be uh, it's an automatic right, and there's some new guidelines and and um, timelines in which um, an expedited timeline. So cities and counties have basically about 30, 60 days to act if they receive one of these applications mm. in order to make any determinations they need to with regards to um, requirements. Whether to approve or deny it. Yeah. Yeah. So Janelle, obviously these measures seem to me anyway, to be, to remove ways that opponents could say fight the location of a, one of these centers. What's the legislature's reasoning here about doing away with these traditional tools like CEQA for evaluating projects? And it's always kind of hard to determine exactly what they were thinking, but I think mm-hmm. in general, the idea behind some of these bills, and in particular, this particular um, provision, was that hopefully to address the homeless issues. Um, we've seen case law come down over the last year and a half, two years, with regards to the abilities of cities and counties to prevent um, you know, people from sleeping in public parks or you know, ad- addressing basic needs of a, of a homeless person. And so um, I think this is just an extension of that philosophy. Okay, great. Thank you. Okay, Bill, before we leave AB 101, does the new law do anything else to foster faster growth in, in new housing that we haven't covered here? Uh, yes, it does. Uh, in kind of two main prongs. Mm-hmm. One, uh, I'll self-term philosophical And by that, I mean, you will hear uh, the governor's office and the legislature talk a lot using the term NIMBY, which stands for not in my backyard. Uh, That is a term deployed by the housing advocacy uh, proponents to say one of the reasons housing hasn't occurred or has been delayed or needs this relief from CEQA and other regulation is because people like their community as is and don't want to see it change. They want to protect their quality of life so they show up both as members of the the local city council, legislative body, and as the public to advocate against these projects. Sacramento has now determined that that local attitude, that isolationism or uh, rejection of new development is a bad thing. And being a bad thing, not only do you strip away the tools, the, the regulatory tools such as CEQA, that have been the means for people to stop uh, undesirable changes to their community, and particularly higher density or higher rise housing. But uh, I'll say shorten the time for people to object to it. And that's translated into what what is called or referenced as streamlined and ministerial approval process. Now, streamlined means, as we've talked somewhat, the normal regulations and, and procedural policies of hearing and sequel analysis and various entitlements, conditional use permit, plan development permits, all of those are traps to hinder or prevent housing. So those are stripped away. Ministerial means has to be approved if it checks all the boxes as opposed to discretionary 
where a community can turn something down just because they don't think it, it fits, uh, I'll say, the culture or the design of the community. It, it is far more subjective than the objective ministerial. So developers now have been given the opportunity to come in if they have projects that are compliant with the state laws and move those through far quicker with a far, far lower level of review and, and input, both from the city staff, the city electeds, and the communities. So you can see or expect to see considerations, additional densities, greater floor areas per parcel of land, greater number of units, uh, density bonus, which is a, an ability to exceed the, the locally mandated zoning, the, the density uh, capacity. Uh, in some cases, it can almost double. Um, if a project has 100% affordable units, they get a, a number of concessions, mm -hmm. including things like parking, which immediately translate into cars on the street, aesthetics, quality of life problems. So it, it's going to manifest itself both visually and practically. And it's something that, again, to counter those that are protecting their, their city or their neighborhood, those NIMBYs, um, the state says, you're no longer allowed to exclude others. Uh, regardless of how much you like your community, the times they are a changing. Mm -hmm. And there's only very limited opportunities, such as a historic district, a, a designated one, a formal one, not just someone thinking something historic, um, that can be protected. Essentially, no city is allowed to say, no vacancy, we're full. Um, you have to accommodate all the folks that may want to live in your community. And to do that in an economical way, in higher densities, faster projects, less objection, is the path the state decided that is to be taken. And the cities either have to go along with it and get some incentives and some grants and some funding, or, as we've talked, get punished both economically uh, by the state as well as perhaps by private parties for declining to change. So uh, those constitutions of each city, rather than be drafted by the residents in them, uh, are now being controlled by the state. And the local residents have some minor aesthetic input, but they can no longer chart their course as they they have historically been able all right all right so let's now turn from ab 101 to the so-called housing crisis act of 2019 otherwise known as sb 330 um janelle broadly can you tell us what this bill does sure that the bill makes significant changes to the application process um, for residential uh, mixed use and uh, transitional or supportive housing development projects. And it it does so in a number of ways. It adds a preliminary application process that didn't exist previously. It um, requires a freezing of certain regulatory landscapes for zoning and CEQA purposes. 
it creates a timeline, a very shortened timeline for the application process in addition to the preliminary application. It uh, creates special provisions for urbanized areas and um, urban cluster areas, and it adds penalties to four cities and counties who violate these housing development laws as they've put, put forth by the state. Interesting. Can you explain what the distinction is between a ministerial approval and what, what these non-ministerial housing projects? Yeah, so kind of what Bill alluded to earlier, a ministerial approval simply means that if you meet certain criteria, um, which the state has laid out in uh, these bills, then it's it's an automatic approval. No longer does the county or the city have the discretion to say, well, we need you to do this, or we want you to have, um, you know, lot sizes of 10,000 square feet or or those types of things. It's, it's going to greatly reduce the city's and county's abilities to have discretion about what their city makeup is going to look like. Uh, ministerial means basically that you can't really challenge it. If, um, if you've checked off that box, then it, it gets approved. Okay. Interesting. And when does this bill go into effect? Um, so the bill... Un- Similar to, well, unlike AB 101, uh, SB 330 becomes effective January 1st of 2020. So... All right. So these preliminary applications start then. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And so... Well, the preliminary process starts then. You, By the time January 1st rolls around, cities and counties are going to have to have, be in compliance with this law. And that will require them to develop certain preliminary application checklists for housing development projects. Um, update their city ordinances, et cetera, to be compliant with SB 330, update um, their ADU ordinances, um, develop other checklists and matrices, and potentially a, a preliminary application application um, for people to fill out. They have to have a form. And so while the law doesn't become effective until S- until January 1st, cities and counties should now be looking at being prepared on January 1st to hand someone an application. Okay, all right. So let's talk a little bit about this preliminary application. What 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 needs to be in it, Bill, and what's not in it? How, how limited does it need to be? Well, it's, again, it's a tool that removes any doubt or uh, later requirements or conditions that a city may impose on a development applicant, which all translates into extra costs. What this requirement now means a city must look very carefully and prepare a all-inclusive list of everything they will need for a successful application, whether it's requirements of, of building plans, grading plans, environmental documents, fees, uh, anything that a city requires, and and they must be objective in the sense of reasonably understood by an applicant. You can't be subjective and leave it vague, and when an applicant comes back thinking they've satisfied everything a city may want, then be told, oh no, you haven't included X, Y, or Z. So it, it is a very detailed, very precise uh, set of everything that the city will want or need to consider a development application. 
once those have been done, it, it essentially vests in the sense that a city can't then add on additional factors uh, after the fact. So it, in theory, the, the point was give the applicant certainty of what was expected so the applicants could both cost it out and establish timelines and avoid either expensive or delaying surprises uh, along the line. Mm -hmm. And while philosophically it makes sense, uh, development always is a, a process of invention and site characteristics. Circumstances may change, so losing that ability to kind of roll with the punches or the tides, cities must be very thorough and perhaps over-inclusive and do their, their list, their preliminary lists in a way that leaves nothing to chance. And of course, the state realizing that bigger cities or well-funded cities can probably accomplish this. Uh, some of the smaller or less economically successful cities may have trouble. So HCD, again, has prepared a, a, and made available what they see as their model checklist. And you can certainly use that. Um, I would always counsel anybody to take it in and, and still modify it to local circumstances. A Sacramento prepared one-size-fits-all seldom does and may leave you shortchanged in areas of local concern. But it's uh, putting it bluntly, you now cut the dog's tail off all at once rather than inch by inch in the development process. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thank you for that detail, Bill. Now, I've heard this term affected cities and counties with respect to SB 330. What does that mean, Bill? And what does SB 330 mean for so-called affected cities and counties? Uh, well, again, the, the legislature... Uh, to ensure that there's uh, the fewest impediments to development of housing has kind of determined where is it most likely uh, successful housing and necessary housing would occur. And they've looked at urban areas or, or the urban clusters, if you will, those uh, cities uh, that are satellites to bigger cities, and said, okay, we don't want to lose the, the utility of the infrastructure that's developed there and the businesses and jobs and everything that's there. We want to instead maximize it. So what they've done is say, you local jurisdictions, you can't downzone any property to a less intensive use, which basically just means you can't require fewer people uh, live there or be fewer units be built on at lower density, unless you have a designation that was pre-2018. This is, is anticipating, uh, from a legal standpoint, uh, a challenge to say it's too abrupt of a change. By relating it back to an earlier year, there is now some flex time. And if a city in that year of, of January 1, 2018 forward 
hadn't made any changes, that meant they were happy. Perhaps their housing element was comfortable to them. So you're not going to now get to turn the clock back in lower densities. But in turn, if back then you were already saying our community is in distress and we need some changes, they'll allow those to continue. Now, the number of cities that are in that position are going to be infinitesimal, but it looks good as if they were legislature was trying to accommodate cities that were already reevaluating their their housing landscape. Mm-hmm. Now, included in all these limitations, uh, you address or you can't address new or increased space requirements or lot size requirements. And there's strict limits on the ability of these these affected cities, those within my term only, the zone of likely housing development. You you can't put a moratorium or or similar restriction on housing development. Just as an aside, moratorium's really not a term out of state planning and zoning law. This comes out of Government Code 65858, which is termed interim zoning. And the theory was if you're a city or a county and you need to change your local standards, during the time you're changing them, there's a timeout. People can't build uh, to the old standards while you're developing the new standards. And that made sense because it allowed that better environment to be created. Well, it's viewed that NIMBYs will use this interim zoning, or as they're calling it, moratoriums, just to prevent. You can go up to uh, essentially two years, and if you could stall housing for a couple of years, 18 months, two years, well, that's going to drive away the developers. So Mm -hmm. Sacramento, seeing that as a potential ploy by cities, took it away and uh, so any changes you're making and again it comes back to that application when they come in the applicants they're going to be able to develop to whatever the standards are whatever's on that list and as you change and evolve them over time you'll catch the new applicants but the old applicants continue under the old regulations okay one last question then before we leave SB 330. What are the penalties for violating it, Janelle? So SB 330 basically uh, provides that uh, cities and counties that have been found to dev- to violate the housing development laws can be fined, may be fined up to $10,000 per housing unit and are subject to attorney the petitioner's attorney's fees. So um, for those, for the agencies that are um, pro- housing, those attorneys in the past have tried to figure out how they can get their fees paid. Now this bill allows that to happen. Um, in addition to, I said, like I said, the $10,000 per housing unit and in a multifamily and a multi-unit facility that could get very expensive for the cities and counties. Yeah. Um, if they're fined, the fines will go to the agency's um, local housing trust fund. But if the agency doesn't have such a fund, it's going to go to the state. Okay. All right. Now, we've covered a lot on those two bills, AB 101 and SB 330. And if we're not all exhausted already, I wanted to talk about one last topic that I believe is covered in 
some of the other housing legislation, and that is so-called accessory dwelling units. Bill, you mentioned this a few minutes ago. Can you tell us about new legislation that uh, pertain to accessory dwelling units or ADUs? Uh, Certainly. I think communities will find this is the most immediate and most grassroots impact on their residents and, and their infrastructure. What this really means, and I'd mentioned single family zoning doesn't exist anymore, and this is the reference. ADUs are accessory dwelling units, and they're allowed up to 800 square foot. Uh, maybe it's 850, but I think it's 800 in most cases. Uh, freestanding on a property that's already developed with an existing single family house. Traditionally, those were known as granny units years ago and had to be occupied by a family member. This legislation takes away all of the constraints to uh, this form of housing. Um, You're now able to rent it to non-family members. You're able to, if owned by a nonprofit, sell separately from the, the main house. One of the, the biggest impacts, at least in, in many cities, there used to be a requirement that if you converted your garage to a housing unit, you had to replace that parking on site. Everybody wanted to have on site managed parking. That's no longer able to be required by a city. So streets were designed at at a certain capacity, driveways were designed at a certain capacity, and now you can double it, and we'll we'll touch on uh, JADUs, or perhaps triple it, Uh, so you'll have conceivably three times as many cars with nowhere to park them on site. That will take them out to the streets or front yards or wherever it may be. That's why I say the the most immediate impact in communities will happen because of these accessory dwelling units. Now, a JADU um, is simply one that is attached to the main dwelling unit. So an ADU is detached, a JADU is attached, its maximum size is 400 square feet as opposed to the 800, hence the, the junior aspect of it. And it, has, it doesn't have to have a restroom or restroom facilities. It must have a kitchen of sorts, but that's basically a countertop appliances, toaster ovens, microwaves, and the such. Um, but there can be a door into the main dwelling unit where a person can go use the sanitary facilities and the primary house. That uh, is looked to be family occupied, more of the classic granny flat uh, kind of development. But it is unlikely, if not impossible, that any city will ever try to enforce that. Knocking on the front door saying, who's living in your attached JADU. Um, They tell you to go away. No city is going to take the time to go get uh, an inspection warrant to run through it. So hopefully they are occupied by family members, but certainly uh, difficult to enforce. 
what we're also seeing that will facilitate this, uh, both, let's say, the state as well as the, the private builder community are telling property owners, you can monetize your property, your backyard. You can build this unit and charge rent. Well, if you're an expensive rent area, uh, you can get two, three, four thousand or more a month off this new little rental unit in the back. That is very attractive to folks, particularly empty nester sorts who don't go out and play in the backyard or, or make use of that open space. And what's happening is there are a lot of, of small builders that are going door to door or sending flyers saying, I can build you an ADU for X amount of money, um, whatever they, they may charge. They may say, I can build you one for $40,000 by converting your garage. You can then rent it out at 4000 a month. Within a year, you'll have paid yourself back. And after that, it's a money pump. So the, the, the builder market, the rental market, the income stream, and the, the entire stripping of local cities' ability to regulate these, everything from location to parking to, to even cosmetics, uh, has made this a, a prime opportunity in cities. But again, if you picture if you live in a single family neighborhood, that all of a sudden the number of residents triple, mm -hmm. the number of cars triple, the number of cars per day traveling triple. Uh, there's going to be dramatic impacts. The state's going to say, well, we've done good. Look at all these people now have housing. It didn't require new sewers or new water because they just tapped into what's existing. And all the people in the neighborhoods are going to say, this is not what we ever anticipated. But it is the new reality and something we're all going to be facing. Sure sounds that way. Yeah. All right. We're getting to the point where we need to start wrapping this up. So, Janelle, can you help us with some takeaways what uh, you talked about this a little bit already, but what should municipalities be doing right now to make sure they're in compliance, like it or not? Yeah, so, well, one thing is to familiarize themselves with these timelines. The ADUs that Bill just talked about, um, the bills also have a um, shortened, they shorten the application process for such units um, from 120 days to 60 days. So a lot of these applications, whether it's through 330, ASB 330 or AB 101 or any of the other um, housing laws have shortened the timelines for cities to process the applications. And so therefore they need to be aware of those timelines. So because a lot of these bills have a provision that if um, the city doesn't note that they need something else, then the condition has been met. So the city might be out of luck if they just don't do it in time, basically. Mm -hmm. um, they also need to, um, as we talked about earlier, apply, uh, get a preliminary application check. That would be part of getting the application checklist or updating their application processes in their ordinances, their ADU ordinances, um, checking to make sure that they have a um, inter internal ADU checklist or matrix, um, an overall checklist for housing uh, projects and look at their local ordinances to make sure they're in compliance with all the new uh, regulations. For example, on the ADU legislations, which is AB 881 and AB 68, 
if the uh, city or county did not previously enact an ADU ordinance, then the standards set forth in the government code is what will control and they can't do it. They can't do it later. So if, and we're getting real close, I mean, if they haven't already started the process, they probably won't be able to adopt one um, because of the timing requirements before January 1st. So they really need to look at that stuff and then talk with their legal counsel about what they can do if they haven't started that process already. Okay. Last question to you both. I I assume that the municipal practice group is hard at work preparing resources to help our clients with all these issues. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, oh, absolutely. As, as has been discussed and as uh, Janelle just noted, preparing model uh, ordinances, being able to give guidance on thoroughness of the, the preliminary applications and checklists, we have our in process and and most exist. We have produced a client news uh, brief that's out that discusses and is available uh, regarding the entirety of the the 20 or so new bills that come in. So cities uh, and counties can look at them, assess whether they think they're on solid ground or whether they need to revisit either with our help or with their own staff um, but realizing that this is going to hit, it's going to hit very quickly, a lot of it come January 1, the developers are eager, uh, BIA and, and the building forces are very aware of this. They want to get their product on the ground and turn it into an economic benefit for them. They are very strong at realizing the shortened time frames and the streamlining. So there is going to be a, a lot of activity come the first part of next year, and all of our lawyer staff are prepared and equipped to address with each of the clients whatever their nuances are, and then. Uh, hopefully get them in a point where the community can be in the best position it can be despite the uh, the kind of command and control Sacramento is imposing on us. All right. And with that, I'm going to thank you both for all of your time and insights and the work of the municipal practice group. Sounds like your clients uh, are going to need a lot going forward. And it's interesting times we live in. Um, so thank you, Bill. And thank you, Janelle. Well, thank you, Devin. You're, as always, an excellent host and a a tough questioner. Uh, I don't know about the tough part, but thank you. Thanks, Janelle. Thank you, Devin. All right. Now, thank you to our listeners for tuning in to Lozano Smith's podcast today. We encourage you to visit our podcast page at lozanosmith.com slash podcast to find links and additional details on some of the topics we discussed today. Also, make sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Thanks, everybody. If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the hosts of this episode or an attorney at any of our eight offices throughout California. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the information contained in this podcast is necessarily general, its application to a particular set of facts and circumstances may vary. For this reason, this podcast does not constitute legal advice. We recommend that you consult with your counsel prior to acting on the information you heard. Thank you.